So welcome to Cult Hackers. My name is Stephen Mather and today I'm very excited to welcome Professor Dennis Turish. He's a Professor of Leadership and Organisation Studies at the University of Sussex. Also the author of many books. One in particular I found fascinating during my Master's in Organisational Psychology called The Dark Side of Transformational Leadership. So we definitely want to get into that. Uh, welcome to the show, Professor Dennis Turish. It's a pleasure to be here, Stephen. Thank you for inviting me. Great. Can't wait for this conversation. Um, really looking forward to nerding out on this with you. Um, so regular listeners to this podcast will know that I have a particular interest in the topic of charismatic and transformational leadership and how it relates to cults and other organizations. Um, so we definitely want to really get into that topic. But first, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this field of study, please, Dennis. Well, I got into it in various ways. I was brought up in Northern Ireland at the height of what were called the Troubles. So we had many very dysfunctional leaders around to observe. That was quite interesting. Secondly, as a young person at the age of 17, I joined uh, the Irish section of what was the militant tendency. Some of your listeners will remember it yeah. as being very active in the Labour Party in the 1970s and 1980s in Britain. I left after 10 years, but I reached the conclusion that it was a cult and that, in fact, almost, in fact, all of these little Trotskyist groups on the far left have cult-like dynamics. I'm not saying that militant was the worst by any means. It was relatively mild as these things go. But nevertheless, I still think it was a cult. And I have written a lot about, about my experiences within it and uh, an analysis of it as well, which I hope are helpful to people. Yeah, so in, in the book that I mentioned, The Dark Side of Transformational Leadership, you, you do go into um, your analysis of um, of the militant tendency. And yeah, I do remember that um, as well. I was fairly young at the time, but I do still remember that um, that whole movement and the, the Labour Party sort of trying to rid itself of, of that. So it was a kind of big story at the time. Um, so when we talk about um, so transformational leadership is the thing that I really wanted to talk to you about. Obviously, your your range of interests are quite wide. You you study and research and write about lots of things. Um, let's get on to the question of transformational leadership. What what do we mean by that? I, I'm not sure everybody would know. So what do we mean by that term? Well, transformational leadership, it's fair to say, has been the dominant theory in the field of leadership studies since maybe the early 1980s especially when leadership and business context is studied. The fundamental idea is that you have a leader who is viewed as transformational in that they are empowered to transform the behaviours, the attitudes, the emotions, the value, the values of their followers in a direction that is consistent with whatever the overall corporate purpose is supposed to be. Now, in its positive light, it's cast in very benign terms. This leader shows the followers, for example, individual consideration uh, to attend to their real needs, finds ways to empower them to make a contribution and so on. But my argument in the book that you have mentioned is that we live in an environment where in most organisations there are very huge power differentials between uh, people and also where organisations are in an environment where they increasingly pursue, for example, just shareholder value as the, their dominant uh, purpose. So actually there are conflicted interests within organizations. And the danger with transformational leadership is simply that you have egotistical individuals who are pursuing their own interests 
but often pretend that they are pursuing the interests of some more or less imaginary collective. And the flaw with the theory is that agency is attributed entirely to those leaders. Influence flows from them to more or less compliant followers. And the role of the follower is more or less to applaud the efforts of the leader. So the leader becomes, and the inimitable phrase of a friend and colleague of mine, Russell Craig, they become someone who is surrounded by a multitude of marvelling minions. And we know that the effects of having too much power are rarely positive on individuals in either politics or business. And I criticise the theory of transformational leadership for legitimising those power imbalances and giving leaders the uh, means whereby they can intensify them and make them even stronger. That's really interesting. And it, it reflects my personal journey in this as well. So I I mentioned in in, a, in my previous um, in our email discussions that my day job is actually as a, a management and leadership trainer. So I'm, I guess, part of the industry that you uh, that you're criticizing. And I, I, I totally um, I, I have lots of concerns myself. And I think as time's gone by, so I've been doing this job for a long time. I just sort of fell into it in my role. Um, and then obviously you you learn what the, the common knowledge is and and you think that transformational leadership sounds great because it's much better than people coming in leaving their brains behind and um their souls behind and and just kind of doing the day job in a very transactional fashion um but i think yeah over time as i started to to study more about courts and also do the masters and read your book i think i started to realize yeah there are some real risks associated with that you've you've really elucidated them um uh, and charismatic leadership is kind of linked to this. So um, this is very relevant to cults because often the description of cults is that there is a charismatic leader at the top of that structure. How does charismatic leadership relate to transformational leadership, Dennis? Well, it's actually quite difficult to distinguish between them and that charisma uh, or the claim of charisma is central to the actual practice of transformational leadership. So I have studied various organisations where I think this is an evidence and recently, for example, I published a paper with Hugh Wilmot on Theranos and its leader, Elizabeth Holmes, mm. who is currently serving, I think, 11 years in prison for fraud. Uh, Theranos is a good example of what we're talking about. It claimed to have a technology which could extract a small pinprick of blood and run 200 diagnostic tests on it, thereby speeding up diagnosis and treatment. Now, it turned out that the technology didn't really exist. It was fundamentally fraudulent. But what's interesting from our perspective here is that Elizabeth Holmes became the youngest female billionaire in the history of Wall Street. She had $120 plus million invested by Rupert Murdoch as well, for example. She was all over the media, the print media. She was on the front page of, I think, Fortune magazine. She was regularly interviewed on TV. She was photographed with people like Joe Biden and so on. So she had a very strong media presence, a very charismatic approach. But she also uh, uh, overstressed, overclaimed the importance of what it is that she was doing as a way of binding people ever closer to the corporate ideal. So, for example, she claimed on several occasions that what they were doing at Theranos was the most important thing in the history of humanity. She claimed, uh, and her co-colleague, conspirator, if you like, Sonny Balwanek, claimed that what they were trying to do was to build something like a corporate religion. They, therefore, flowing from this, they, they got people to work very, very hard, very, very long hours. And on one famous occasion, Balwani, at a meeting of the staff, 
told them that if any of them didn't fully believe that this was the most important thing ever, they should get the F out now and leave. So it was a question of all in or all out. Mm -hmm. And that's very typical of uh, cultic-type environments and politics, religion, and as I have just tried to describe, in business. Yeah, so when did you start to... Was it that you, obviously, you you said about the militant tendency and you started to recognise that you'd been a member of a cult. Was it then that you started to study leadership and management or was that kind of on a separate track? That was on a separate track. I, I became an NHS manager for a period after I got over all of this and after I graduated. Then I became an academic and I studied it more. And at the time I began to study this, Transformational leadership was very rarely examined from a critical perspective. In fact, there were numerous articles extolling its benefits, its claimed benefits, virtually none that looked at the risks that were attached to it. Mm. So I stepped into that fray and probably published one of the first critical articles on the subject way back in 2001, I think. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I think there's a there's a sort of moment when you you start to... I remember my blood running slightly cold um, when I started to think about the topic a bit more carefully, um, especially around the alignment of identity. So that's something that I think is quite interesting. You talk about it in your book. Um, so what, why is that particular risk around this sort of leadership style? Well, you mentioned the word soul earlier, trying to uh, involve. And, and I think of transformation leadership as opening the door to colonizing people's souls um, as an attempt, an extremist, for example, in Theranos, but not only in Theranos, in many organisations that we're familiar with, an attempt to abolish any distinction between people's private lives and their work lives. I noticed, for example, when Elon Musk took over Twitter um, at the end of last year, one of the first things he did was send an email to people demanding that they become hardcore Twitter employees. And um, one of his employees, a woman, actually posted a photograph of herself sleeping in a sleeping bag in her office. She took this so seriously, which incidentally didn't stop her being fired two or three months later when he went into a further process of downsizing. But it's fundamentally this business of abolishing the distinction between uh, people's work lives and their uh, home lives. And I read an interesting interview a little while ago with a guy called Steve Kerr, who used to be an academic, and then he became a senior executive in General Electric and other organizations, and it chilled my blood. You know, He said that when I was a General Electric, and this is almost a verbatim quote, we used to tell people, you, could, you, you will come here and work, and you, 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 will, you will probably have a bad marriage, but you won't be home often enough to know that you're having it. If you don't like this, don't come. But if you do like this, and you're willing to do this in order to have the possibility of becoming fabulously wealthy, then come. Now, in a sense, he was being honest, <clears throat> but at the same time, it is a prospectus that has become alarmingly common in the corporate world that uh, you exist only for work. You must do whatever the organization and its leaders demand of you. And as we know, things like email, social media, mobile phone technology means that people are more and more readily available. And more recently as well, I've gotten very interested in the growth of surveillance technology in the workplace, the use of which I think is intensifying sure. and taking us in ever more alarming directions where it's becoming more possible for organizations to subordinate the totality of their employees' lives to the idea of work. Very, very dangerous. Yeah, that's uh, I, I agree. Um, 
the ability to to tell what keystrokes people are making and how long it takes for them to yeah. do various tasks. I mean, that is very much very courty, isn't it? You know, you must yeah, do very, this. very courty. Yeah, and yeah. they're developing technology now, facial recognition technology and the like, which purports to be able to identify people's emotions um, as well, which is pretty awful. I read about an organization in America recently where the employees had little um, chips implanted into their arms which they could use to open and close doors, pay bills in the cafeteria and so on. But of course, this also monitors where you are and what you are doing, that type of thing. So in theory and in principle, it opens up what I think of as a totalitarian direction of travel inside organisations. And the idea that in that kind of environment, leaders should have much more power and virtually no limits on the issues and the areas that they can dictate to employees on seems to me very culty. Yeah. So you um, obviously you you refer to I guess the grandfathers of of the whole study around cults such as Shine and Lifton, mm-hmm. uh, and in your book you you go through Lifton's um, is it eight points um, that Something he identifies. Like yeah. So um, what have you noticed then in relation to these sorts of setups that are very much related to what Lifton was describing back in, in was it the 50s, I think it was, when he was doing his work? Uh, yeah, I think it might have been the late 50s that he began to study this. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is this idea of what he called milieu control, totally controlling the environment within which individuals are operating, limiting their communications with outsiders as much as possible, and sanctifying the authority figures within that environment as the ultimate arbiters of what is right and what is wrong. So, you know, the idea of surveillance ties in very nicely with that, that we have just been talking about. And again, that was very powerful at Theranos that I've just talked about. They had security cameras everywhere. They had security guards everywhere. The visitors had to be accompanied by these security guards when they came into the offices, even when they went to the toilet. Um, there were alarms, there, there were little systems fitted in each door uh, inside, so that if two or more people tried to enter, then an alarm would go off and they could be intercepted. They made extensive use of non-disclosure agreements to stop people talking to outsiders about their experiences. And in fact, people were told that on social media, they shouldn't even identify the fact that they were Theranos employees, all couched in the interests of uh, confidentiality and proprietary information. But of course, it was ridiculous. Mm -hmm. It went far beyond the norm, even in that uh, type of company. So it didn't even have anything, did they? They Sorry? didn't even have anything to protect. They didn't no, have no, a... no, 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 no. They hired third-party equipment to run the tests that they then claimed had been run in the, uh, on their equipment. And, of course, that's another aspect of cultic environments, deception, mm. lies, overblown claims. And Lifton talked a lot about that, um, purporting to um, have a corporation that is a religion is a very worrying example of that because there's simply no comparison between whatever any given corporate purpose is and the expansive claims of worldwide religions and so on. So milieu control, I think, is a very important uh, part of that process as a way of dominating the entirety of a person's life. Yeah, that's um, that's right. I, another example of that, I think, is um, is WeWork. So WeWork is, is a business that's still around but has changed uh, radically in terms of its structure so we're talking about the kind of old we work here um uh, have you looked into that that's a, that's another one of those kind of very interesting cases i think 
It is. I'm in the process of looking into it at the moment. It was led, of course, by Adam Newman, as you know, who was ultimately forced out as the CEO. He cultivated a literally almost like a Christ-like figure with uh, very long hair, lots of promotional videos extolling the company. And I mean, again, we have this discrepancy between what it was actually doing and the claims that were being made for it. At the end of the day, it was renting office space. But he claimed, again, that it was transforming the world, creating communities of people that we live in, the we generation, and so on. And of course, it turns out that in spite of all of these grand claims, he was fundamentally interested in enriching himself. And a lot of the money that was being raised from investors, rather than going into developing the business, was going into, going into his bank account. Uh, the net result for him was disaster, and the company has never fully recovered from that. I think as a general rule, the grander the claims that a business leader is making, the, the, the more sceptical we should be. And the minute they begin to talk about changing the world, rather than simply delivering a product or a service, it really is time to get worried. Yeah, I think that's good advice. And um, so one of the questions that, that me and Celine often debate is whether a cult leader um, is kind of like the first member of their own cult. You know, So whether are they doing this on purpose? Are they evil geniuses or, or do they fall into this because they – uh, they have a, an overinflated ego and they just don't quite know what's what's happening. I, I, I know we cannot know the answer to this for sure, but I'm just interested in your insights. Yeah. Well, it, it is necessarily speculative, isn't it? Because as you say, we can't see into their heads. Yeah. But first of all, I think that a very big ego must be part of the equation. You don't get into this environment if you're a very humble person. Mm-hmm. You must believe that you have exceptional abilities and exceptional powers. Beyond that, I think they engage in a process of what has been described as self-persuasion. And I think that's one of the reasons why many cult members spend a lot of their time trying to recruit other members. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, being a good instance of that. And going out to recruit people, you're necessarily stressing the positive aspects of whatever the belief system is, and you're ignoring the downsides. And I think there's some evidence that in the process of doing that, you end up reconvincing yourself. In addition to that, you have got this process of what Cialdini calls social proof or consensual validation. You have the spectacle of lots of other people agreeing with you that you are a genius or whatever. With Elizabeth Holmes at Tirana, she was all over the media, interviewed, claimed, lionized. That feeds back to you. And you begin to think to yourself, well, there must be something in this. Maybe I am a genius. Everybody's telling me all the time. And uh, I think that, as I've said before, therefore, there's always the danger that some very high profile business leaders will become like a rock star surrounded by a psychophantic entourage. They essentially begin to believe their own propaganda. But whether they believe it or whether they don't, there comes a point where you're too far in to, to retreat. You know, what could someone like Elizabeth Holmes do in the latter days? She couldn't suddenly stand up and admit everything. And all she could do, really, and I'm sure she genuinely did hope for the best, that at some point they would invent the technology that she claimed they already had invented. Something will turn up. It's always the mantra, you know. But there are so many examples of cult organizations. And going back to the Trotsky's far left, they're the, one of the best examples. They keep on doing the same thing year after year, decade after decade, with absolutely no progress, but believing that next time it will be different. Hi, I'm Tracy. And I'm Sharon. And we are Feet of Clay, Confessions of the Cult Sisters. 
So way back in the 1970s, we became radical Christians in the Jesus movement. We were promoted to leadership in the crazy cult commune, Last Days Ministries, founded by none other than Christian music megastar, Keith Green. Now we're sharing our decades long escape from the trauma and abuse of extreme Christianity. We tell our own stories and also invite guests to talk about fundamentalism, purity culture, arranged marriages, child abuse, misogyny, homophobia, (laughs) power-hungry patriarchy, and much more. Much, much more. So join us as we share our journey of healing and humor and how we finally found peace and joy on the other side. Feet of Clay, Confessions of the Cult Sisters, wherever you get your podcasts. Did you know it's estimated that there are over 3 million podcasts currently out there? So trying to get noticed and grow listeners is really hard. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not tell a friend about it? We can be found on all the podcast apps. So please tell them to search for Cult Hackers. In fact, why not pause the show right here and do it now? You can find the pod link on our show notes. So you can just copy and paste it into a message or share it using your app. Thank you. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that it's not restricted to any sort of political wing, you know, so you've described um, straight out capitalism or capitalist organizations and uh, and also left leaning groups. So this is this is a this is separate from that. It's on a completely different dimension, really. It is. Uh, it's uh, obvious to me at the moment that, for example, the extreme right in the United States has been set with these types of problems. A friend of mine and cult expert Steve Hassan has written a very good book called The Cult of Trump, exploring the cultic dynamics in his, mm-hmm. uh, among his followers, the MAGA movement as well, where people seem very, very committed to the cause, impervious, denying, denying counter-evidence and uh, always escalating their commitment, uh, beset by conspiracy theories and the like. So, yeah, these dynamics are widely there and very dangerous. Yeah, so actually that's quite interesting. Um, we've, Celine and, and I, just before this uh, this podcast, have, have just recorded another one where we talk about um, this whole question of conspiracism and the similarities to cults and why people are attracted to these. And that, that there seems to be a a deep psychological need for some basic uh, requirements such as you know the feeling of autonomy and feeling of competence and uh, and these these groups uh these leaders both in terms of cultic organizations and conspiracy sort of gurus if you like they seem to be able to attract people using those mm-hmm. those needs don't they i don't know if you've sort of thought about that yes i have and i've uh, been reading a lot about it in the in the recent period uh, I mean, I think human beings generally um, are uncertainty reduction creatures. <clears throat> we strive to reduce it. Mm. There is therefore the temptation to go for an explanation that seeks to explain everything. And typical conspiracy theories do that. There's a hidden hand behind everything. Yeah. In the case of the far right in America, for example, there's often been uh, and the, at least the implication of some kind of globalist Jewish conspiracy mm. to take over the world. And you could think of many other examples. So it purports to explain everything. It, purport, it, it claims to reduce uncertainty. And then it gives you membership of a group 
uh, whether that is a virtual group or not, is mm-hmm. a, a, an issue these days, where you're surrounded by other people in an echo chamber who share the same view as you, and they reinforce your belief system and the conviction that these outlandish theories are uh, correct. And of course, they're generally not correct. The biggest conspiracy theory around in recent years, of course, has been the idea that the election in America was stolen from Trump by Biden. Just think what that would mean. Thousands of people engaged in a conspiracy, thousands of them. None of them ever blabbing to their friends, their family, the media about what went on. The execution, the uh, conspiracy also executed perfectly, which, of course, no conspiracy ever is in the real world. And, of course, we do have real conspiracies. Mm -hmm. But I think a conspiracy mindset is fundamental to the whole cultic uh, dynamic as well. And cult leaders seek to reinforce that at, at every opportunity. We're surrounded by enemies. They want to steal our ideas. They want to steal our technology, which was one of the big conspiracy claims within Theranos. We have to be vigilant. We have to be united. We have to keep outsiders at uh, bay. And we have to preserve the purity of our belief system, which uh, includes very often the strong element of conspiracism. Uh, Another organisation that you talk at length about, obviously you've done a lot of work on, it's probably a bit of an older example, but the Enron example, which some of our yeah. listeners might um, might remember. So in the UK, we we probably just heard about it on the news as a kind of big organisation that, that went bust. But I mean, there's a very interesting backstory to that. Do you want there to just um, tell us what you found out about that? Well, yeah, Enron was the biggest bankruptcy, actually, in US corporate history up to that point in 2001. And uh, it had two principal leaders, Ken Lay and Jeffrey Skilling, Skilling has just been released from prison for fraud in the last year or two. Oh, Kenneth cool. Lay managed to avoid prison by dying before he could be sentenced. Hmm. But again, uh, ultimately, like many corporate cultic environments, a lot of it was deception. How did it make its money? It made it by fraudulent accountancy practices. But at one point, it was one of the most highly valued companies in the world. Again, it uh, developed a very insular mentality. Its key employees at its uh, Texas headquarters were encouraged to work 70 or 80 hours a week, which is incredible. It goes back to that Steve Kerr quote, there's no way you can work those hours and have anything like a family life outside the corporate environment. They developed their own insular language. They were called Enronians. You weren't just an employee, you were an Enronian. And they also had this internal system, which is very interesting, which they actually adapted from General Electric called Rank and Yank, where the employees were divided into three categories each year. Top crowd, they were referred in Enron internally, they were referred to as water walkers. So they were given huge rewards. Middle group were told, you're doing okay, but you could improve. Bottom 10% every year stated for dismissal. So a hugely competitive internal environment, which created a dynamic where the only way to try and secure your job was to keep escalating your commitment to the organization. Now, that's very cultic. Mm. And it has echoes in different other cultic environments. The people who prosper, if that's the right word, within these environments who rise up and so on, are the ones who show the most devotion. Any hesitation, on the other hand, you're a potential traitor. The group descends on you. They find a means of either getting you back fully on board or kicking you out, one or the other, because what the cult can ever tolerate is dissent in any meaningful form. And the, the problem and one of the paradoxes of this is, in business organizations, we do need dissent. 
because no one leader or no one group of leaders has all the answers, has all the wisdom that they need to solve their organization's problems. And the more complex the problem, the truer that is. Yeah. And, and going back to your rank and yank example, I think that's um, so fear is is something that cults um, deploy mm. quite effectively um, from their perspective, I guess. And uh, I mean, for me, it's um, if you think about Jehovah's Witnesses, but many, many other groups like that, there's a there's a, a very simple strategy. It is isolate you. So this gradual reduction in the amount that you have to do with anybody else outside of the organization or outside of the group, which means that you become totally dependent for your social needs and everything really on the group itself. And again, tied to identity. And then of course the, the fear is that you'll lose that. So you've got nothing else. You've got no safety net. This is the only thing you've got now. And that's the, the stick that they can wield to say, right, if you do this or you don't do that, then you lose this wonderful place, this only place that you have, and you're out on the outside then. Well, I mean, as you know, and cults, one of the key things that they do is they overwork the membership. The ideal cult member is somebody who devotes the entirety of their lives to what the group does, who reads only cult literature, who spends a lot of time trying to recruit other people, who gives up a lot of money, typically, to to the group as well. Mm. And if you think about little, you know, uh, if you think about, for example, political cults, the people who then get most involved in them work for them full time, as I did myself for a period of years. And if that goes on for too long, when you come back out, you've got a great big hole in your CV. Yeah. You probably have interrupted education. You perhaps have minimal qualifications. The The challenge of readjusting to the real world can be very um it can be a huge strain and stress on people. <clears throat> I heard I recently was encountered somebody who'd spent something like 40 years in the Unification Church, a.k.a. the Moonies. Mm. And your heart goes out to people who have been through that type of experience. You know, it's very difficult to rebuild a life when you've been through that type of trauma. Yeah, or or indeed build it in the first place. So I was raised as a Jehovah's Witness. Um, so I suppose that's the bit that's a bit different to the corporate world in that, um, you know, I knew nothing else. So I was about 30 when I left the organization. And in terms of gaps on my CV, you know, it was there wasn't much of a CV to to put together. You know, I was a window cleaner um, for a good portion of that time. Um, so. Yeah, so that's that's why I ended up doing my degrees when I was in my forties and fifties. You know, so that's that's kind of typical of of what happens to to court members. It's very difficult to pick up the pieces yeah. afterwards. Yes, I started my own degree at the age of twenty eight after I left, um, and I, I, you know I've done okay in the in the period since. But in addition to the gap in your CV and starting to do that, you have to reinterpret the world afresh. Absolutely. From um, when you come out of these organizations, I felt that I came from a political cult, but perhaps like you, I had lost a religion. I had lost this master key explaining the universe to me. I had to figure out again, what did I really believe? What was true and what was false? And I had to learn, and this is where university education was very important. I had to learn to ground any beliefs that I acquired in evidence and uh, think carefully about what evidence actually represented Whereas in a cultic organization, you don't really learn that. You just have a select bunch of quotations or whatever, and they're the source of your analysis. And uh, you interpret everything that happens in the world as confirmation of your belief system. 
I wanted to ask you about how you felt about that and, and you've kind of give given me some really interesting stuff there about your experience afterwards. So yeah, I, I, I use the sort of phrase sense making, uh, making sense of, of the world after you leave because everything that you, everything that you've seen, everything that you've experienced always was seen through the lens of the group. I'm sure that was the same for for your group. So this is an example of this, and this is an example of this, and this is an example of this. So everything is seen through that lens. When you leave, yeah, you you don't have that lens anymore. So um, what is that process like? How long did that take you? Obviously, you said education was a big part of that, but how long did that take you to sort of free yourself of that lens? Well, it took me a number of years, really, and I also had to get some therapy during that process. It's not just the belief system you lose, but as you mentioned, I think you mentioned earlier, you also lose association with that group of people who had meant so much to you. Mm. So you're you're completely isolated. Your whole individual identity is shot to pieces. Uh, Who am I? What is my purpose? Do I have one? Do I need one? And what should it be? How do I begin to go about accumulating this? And uh, for many people, the, the 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 impact of that never totally goes. I mean, to be honest, I still have dreams about it, even 40 years after leaving. Wow. It doesn't disturb me on Julia anymore. It used to. Not now. But you don't ever, I think, completely forget a thing like that. That's for sure. You certainly don't forget it. But some of the traumatic effects do linger almost indefinitely. Yeah, I think our listeners will definitely um, relate to that, Dennis. One that's... of the things that I think definitely helps is reading about cults in the sense of beginning to understand what they are and uh, and therefore acquiring some understanding of yourself. It's very easy to feel that you've been an idiot, that you've been a fool and so on. And of course, the research tells us that the average cult member is anything but, that uh, all that happens is that we all go through periods of vulnerability in our lives. And at that peak moment of vulnerability, we sometimes encounter a group that appears to offer to ease our pain. And therefore, they exploit that feeling of vulnerability to hook you and to the group. I think acquiring an understanding of these things is absolutely fundamental. And for me, I remember stumbling by accident across Steve Hassan's book, Combating Cult Mind Control. And that was the first time I had read anything about cults. And it was a huge moment of empowerment and insight for me in trying to figure this all out. Yeah, there's there's a lot more about now than there used to be, isn't there? In terms of understanding uh, this authors like Steve Hassan and um, uh, Alexandra Stein, we we just spoke to her, um, and that was amazing. Jan Yelalich's books, obviously, yeah. and Alex's book about her own experience is absolutely fantastic. It's a wonderful piece of literature as well as a good account of of her experience. Yeah, I definitely recommend people um, read everything that that she's done. Um, yeah, this it's really really interesting. Um, but again, that was a, a left wing. So she she found herself in a very left wing group. I think Yanya Lalich as well was a was a left wing. Yeah, Yanya was in an all female book uh, group in California from the mid seventies to the mid eighties. Yeah, so um, a, a lot of these groups. So we we tend to think of cults as being religious, but but the evidence is they they are definitely not just religious. No, and I've written about psychotherapy cults as well. <clears throat> would lend themselves very much to these dynamics. Because again, by definition, when people encounter one of these groups, psychotherapy groups, they're feeling vulnerable, they're looking for assistance. And instead, they get roped into somewhat abusive relationships with uh, would-be therapists. And of course, you don't need a qualification to set yourself up as a therapist, (laughs) which is fierce when you think of the potential for harm that there is. frightening, isn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah, so um, that kind of leads us on to the question of power. So I know that's something that interests you a lot. Um, you, Your book is um, The Dark Side of Transformational Leadership, A Critical Perspective. So from a critical perspective, I suppose you, you're always looking at power differentials and how power raises its head, if you like, in various different dynamics. Um, so what's interesting about power within these groups? You've already kind of mentioned about um this asymmetric power relationship. But is there anything else that we should know about how power operates within these cultic groups? Well, let's go back to corporations. Uh, the management scholar, Sidney Finkelstein, wrote a number of years ago that being a CEO today is the nearest thing you can become to being king of your own country. And in case that sounds attractive, he went on to add, and that's a very dangerous title to assume. <laughs> it's dangerous for the organisation, it's dangerous for the followers, it's dangerous for the well-being of the individual that is in that particular position as well. And I think the management literature suffers from a heroic bias about CEOs. Everything, I, I got an alert today from uh, management today about a new article that they have. And again, it's all aimed at CEOs as the ultimate decision maker, as if they can make these decisions more or less entirely mm-hmm. on their own. So the more power, wealth, and so on that these individuals acquire, the more likely it is, in my view, that they will develop what we think of as hubris, which uh, I've also studied in the banking sector. And uh, uh, hubris is fundamentally a completely unmerited over-conviction, over-self-confidence, and the wisdom of your ideas, combined with a feeling of contempt for the opinions of other people, who almost by definition are kind of a lower specimen of humanity than you, who are there to do your bidding, rather than anything else. Mm. So it can very quickly become associated with um, uh, contemptuous behaviour towards others and abusive behaviour towards them as well. For example, I interviewed a woman who had been a senior figure within a financial services organisation. She told me that her CEO, who was, by the way, female as well, had a system whereby she could step into the lift outside her office and use a key to stop it from stopping at intervening floors before she got to her car. One day she forgot to use it. Somebody stepped into the lift. She asked them to get out. That's hubris. Mm -hmm. That's an over-concentration of power. My same interviewee told me that she met this woman in the checkout counter at Marks & Spencer's one day, spoke to her civilly, hello, how are you, nice to see you, blah, blah. The following day, her line manager brought her into his office and reprimanded her for speaking to the CEO in public. These are examples of power completely out of control Mm -hmm. and the negative effects that it has on the personality, on the mindset of the persons who hold that power themselves. As I say, it isn't good for them. It isn't good for the organizations. Certainly isn't good for the followers who have to become more and more compliant and suppress their individuality in order to appear to conform completely to whatever the value system of the CEO is. Yeah, so that, that's, that makes a lot of sense. And um, I think reading your, your book, I, I was nodding along to uh, so much of what you were saying. I think the, the thing that I left me with at the end, which I'm going to ask you now, um, is, okay, then, what what is the alternative so so let's have some thoughts around so if we think about business particularly um how do we avoid business becoming businesses becoming this cultic type of environment with this cultic structure um this abuse of power um is there any way to do that what 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 are the things that we should be doing differently within organizations well there is a 
a growing movement of people campaigning for more democracy within the workplace. Um, I remember reading an article over 30 years ago now called De-Stalinizing the Corporation. And the ironic point that was being made was that the last redoubt of Stalinism in the modern world is the corporation, where power is concentrated entirely at the top. So I think there's plentiful scope to extend the principles of democracy within organisations. Now, democracy is not a panacea in politics or in uh, uh, organisations, but it is remarkable how in most companies people have very, very little input into the decision-making process. And I think we have scope to change that. We can share responsibility for decision-making much more widely. For example, I think that there is room to experiment with allowing employees themselves to select the managers who are going to manage them. Why not? Why not? Why should it be just one way around? There are companies that have tried this and done very well with it. And I think we have more. we need more scope for that. But in order to go down this road, there's a more fundamental change that needs to take place. And that is that uh, the neoliberal ideology that has dominated business for the last 30 odd years has created a situation where, particularly for large companies like General Electric, Apple, Theranos and so on, the overwhelming principle that guides what they do is shareholder value. And uh, in pursuit of that, other issues like, for example, employee well-being are sidelined. I think that ideology needs to be fundamentally interrogated and frankly set aside with other uh, structural changes that ensures that companies pursue much more than that simple solitary metric of success. Yeah, that's really interesting. So we tend to take for granted, don't we, that um, yeah, businesses need to have a, a board and they need to have this and they need to have that and the managers are appointed by the board and uh, the you know the, we have a set of values that are decided by by the board who have uh, uh, employed some consultants to come up with them and we put them on the website and so on. Yes, well, I, 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 I saw a very fascinating presentation at MIT School of Management a while ago by Ricardo Semler, who, uh, of course, was the CEO of Senco, this Brazilian company, which is highly successful. And he said, for example, this is how we would select a chief financial officer. We would figure out the qualifications that are needed and the experience and then we would advertise. And anybody who meets that criteria comes in on a certain day at a certain time. And we send a note around the company. Anybody who's interested and who gets this job shows up. Can be the tea lady, the security guard, whoever. If you don't show up, we assume you have no interest in who gets this position. They talk to the candidates and then decide on the shortlist. And the people shortlisted then come in and hang out for two or three days in the company. The original group meets again and has a vote and who gets the job. And he said, why not? He said, we've established that all these people have the qualifications and the skills already. The only other question is, do we like them and do they like us? That's it. But what a tool for empowerment that is when you think about it, that type of thing. Why should it only be the CEO who makes that type of appointment uh, decision? Draw on the wisdom of the people around you, which is usually left at the factory gates when they go into the workplace these days. It's absolutely, completely absurd when you think about it. It's true. And and we, as I say, we've just come to accept these structures and ways of the way that things are now as being the only way they can be. But it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be that way, does it? No, it doesn't. And, uh, you know, think back to the nature of cults, all power concentrated at the centre in the hands of a solid, usually a solitary individual with maybe a small group of trusted aides around them. Well, corporations are inherently like that and there's no necessary reason why they should be. And in particular, I would say, why is it that we say 
uh, democracy is a good idea in society, but more of it is a bad idea in the world of business. It's it's a very good question. So, um, how do you get on with um, with other academics in the in this field, Dennis? It sounds like um, you're you're shouting at um, or you're you're raising issues that that actually uh, might disturb many people who like the status quo. How mm. uh, how do you how do you sort of how is that idea received? Well, there's you, you, it is true that there are mainstream management scholars who just take the status quo completely for granted. But there's also a significant group of people within the management academic community that challenge it. They're often referred to as the critical management scholars. And there's a very strong stream of them that, that are out there who publish various journals on leadership management and so on with an explicitly critical orientation. I mean, a lot of it, frankly, is rubbish as well from a different point of view in that it's too theoretical. It's obsessed with some strange ideas by uh, uh, other people. It doesn't always relate to the world as you might think it should do. But nevertheless, it's good that the status quo is being challenged. And you're quite critical of of the industry, I suppose, the um, the, the, the management gurus and, um, uh, you know, the, I suppose the management training industry, What what what's all happening there in terms of yeah, um, evidence-based stuff. So t- tell us yeah. about that criticism. Yeah, I think, uh, well, for example, if you take my field of leadership, a thing that has become very, very popular in the field in the last few years has been what they call authentic leadership theory, <clears throat> which purports to give you a means to be your authentic self in the workplace as a leader and uh, therefore achieve all kinds of wonderful things. I think it's nonsense. I think the empirical base of it is virtually non-existent. Um, several of the foundational academic papers that were published supporting it have been retracted because of problems with data analysis. In other words, the literature supporting this theory was inauthentic in itself, which is very, very ironic. But the reason why it gained popularity, I think, is that, first of all, some mainstream management academic scholars have a vested interest in acquiring a side consultancy business and earning a lot of money. And, of course, CEOs and their colleagues can be seduced by this because it's very tempting to think that there are five steps or three steps or eight steps, whatever it is, three simple things you can do that will transform the people around you and make them super stars, super performers, um, or transform the organization in some way. The problem is that life is much more complex than that. Business is much more complex than that. There are no some beware of anybody who tells you that there are three simple things to do that will make you a millionaire or turn your business into a world-beating competitor. Uh, William Goldman, the famous screenwriter who wrote Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, once said that about, about movies, nobody knows anything. Nobody knows what makes a successful movie. And this was a guy who was very successful at it. Well, in a certain sense that you can say similar things about business, why is it that some businesses succeed? Why is it that some businesses fail? There are many factors involved, including one that is rarely examined, and that is luck, luck, uh, good fortune, and so on. So I think the temptation is for CEOs and boards to engage in what has been described as fad surfing, going from one fad to the other, in search of quick fixes. They don't exist. But some of these re- delinquent theories that we're talking about gain traction because that is what they purport to offer. Yeah, and I, I suppose I've also got some concern around the the methodologies of a lot of uh, the research. So a lot of hmm. what we what we tend to call quantitative research is not nothing of the sort really because it's it's just surveys that people are making a kind of judgment on um i don't know whether you've got any thoughts about that type of research how 
how all the dangers or risks associated with that? I think it is very dangerous. You're quite right that, especially in leadership theory, actually the primary method of investigation are surveys. Well, surveys have their have very very strong limitations, and it's difficult to use them to establish causation. What a that a causes b, yeah. because really they very often just establish correlation. A happened, and then at some point B happened. Mm-hmm. But then if I dance long enough in my garden, it's going to rain as well. It doesn't mean that my dancing has <laughs> caused the rain to fall. Yeah. That's a very strong uh, danger with uh, these types of methodological approaches. Now, solid research that actually can establish causality is, of course, very, very, very difficult to do. Yes. It might even turn out to be impossible. All we can have are tentative conjectures about what works and what doesn't work. But we need, I think, to open up the field to a wider range of methodological approaches. And we need always to temper our knowledge claims with some humility. We think that this might be the case, but it might not be the case. It's infuriating for people to hear that more research is needed, but very often that is the truth. More research is needed and every knowledge claim is entirely provisional, especially in the field of the social sciences and must be approached cautiously. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And the same goes for cults as well. Um, in you know, academic um inquiries into into cultic studies and how they work. I think the same goes for that. It's so difficult because you are um it's it is a it's social science, it's psychology, it's the way people are thinking, it's then how they report how they're thinking and feeling. It's it's very, very difficult to get to the very difficult, very difficult. Yeah. Very difficult. But, you know, I always feel that despite those difficulties, it's nonsense for some people to say that, therefore, we can say that cults don't exist. If we can't define it with absolute precision, it doesn't exist. The fact is that they do exist. They are, in my view, best viewed on a continuum. You have some sort of more or less benign groups at one end. You have very destructive cults at the other end. And I think the Jehovah's Witnesses are perhaps among that particular uh, group. And cults can move back and forth a little bit on that curriculum as well okay dennis well um i don't know about you you probably uh, have many more important things to do but i could literally talk to you all day and uh for for a few days so um i've thoroughly enjoyed listening to your insights and your research into cultic um practices in the workplace it's something that really interests me so thank you so much for coming on the podcast today uh, professor dennis torish thank you very much Stephen. thoroughly enjoyed it